The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Future of Severe Asthma Treatment is Here. Expert insights on the rationale for targeting epithelial alarmins. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NDA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello. Today, we are going to present the future of severe asthma treatment is here. Expert insights on the rationale and targeting of epithelial alarmants. So let's start exploring the latest insights into the pathophysiology of severe asthma, taking a closer look at the role of epithelial alarmants. My name is Reynolds A. Panetieri Jr., MD. I'm from the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. I'm director of the Rutgers Institute for Translational Medicine and Science at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, New Jersey. So severe, uncontrolled asthma has a profound, great impact on the quality of life. Why? Because it has excessive symptoms, frequent and life-threatening exacerbations, increased comorbidity, burden, high pharmacologic treatment requirements. Globally, there are about 2.5, 2.5 million patients with severe asthma who are uncontrolled or eligible for biologic therapy. There are approximately 1 million in the United States. 1 million. That's an enormous number of individuals. The significant burden remains for many patients with severe uncontrolled asthma despite available treatment. Many patients with severe asthma have inadequate response to biologic treatment and oral corticosteroids and fail to achieve asthma control. Exacerbation rates in study populations with anti-IgE, anti-IL-5, anti-IL-5 receptor antagonists, anti-IL-4 receptor antagonist treatments are reduced by approximately 50%. Why? Well, the need for a broader target. Existing biologics target immunological pathways that are downstream from type 2 inflammatory cascade. This may explain why exacerbations are only partly abrogated. Remember what I just said. Only 50% are treated with current very current biologics, leaving a large number of patients that are basically unmet need. The broader inflammatory response that involves IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13 is initiated by the release of alarmins from the airway epithelium in response to triggers. And what are the alarmins? It's TSLP, IL-33, and IL-25. Again, the alarmants we're talking about are TSLP, IL-33, and IL-25. Now, those are secreted by the epithelium. The inflammatory subtypes of asthma that could be impacted by the alarmants are shown on this slide. Airway inflammation and the biomarkers we use, remember the biomarkers we use are sputum BAL, biopsies, pheno, bloody eosinophil counts, an allergic sensitization measured by serum IgE and specific IgE, these can lend themselves to a phenotype of eosinophilic 
mixed eosinophilic and neutrophilic, posse granulocytic, or neutrophilic phenotypes. Now, the eosinophilic phenotype could even be further segmented into allergic or non-allergic. Now, the endotypes, and, and remember the discrimination here, Phenotypes are treatable traits, whereas endotypes identify the mechanism of action. On the left side, we have type 2 or T2 high. And on the right side, we talk about the non-type 2 or low T2 inflammation. Now, let's be honest. This is really a continuum. It's a continuum. It's not an either or. So keep that in mind as we develop this theme. So what is the role of the airway epithelium and asthma? Well, first and foremost, we think of it as a barrier function, keeping the extracellular, extra environmental things on the outside and protecting the inner airways. But we can see here that very high in the cascade of airway inflammation sits the alarmins that are secreted by epithelium in response to viruses, allergen, smoke exposure, or pollution. The alarmins then set into motion the secretion of IL-4, IL-13, and IL-5. Now, IL-4, these T2 modulators, can be seen by having higher serum IgE levels or specific, specific IgE, eosinophils, or in the case of IL-4 and IL-13, pheno, the fractional exhaled uh, levels of nitric oxide, or IL-5, but we don't measure IL-5, we measure serum eosinophils. Now, let's go one level below. What is the physiologic consequences? Well, we know that IL-4 and IL-13 can engender airway hyperresponsiveness. 13 and 4 are great modulators for goblet cell hypertrophy and sputum production, whereas the eosinophil we recognize is important in airway remodeling as well as in bronchoconstriction. At the end of the day, these integrated pathways lead to symptoms of increased chest tightness, cough, and wheeze, or decrement decrement in lung function, and or exacerbations. Now, the role of the epithelium in asthma, in summary here, shows it to be a barrier function and a sensor. It's the protective barrier and environmental sensor. It can modulate, orchestrate, mediate inflammation, driving both innate and adaptive immune responses. It induces inflammation, through cytokine and alarm and secretion, and it drives the structural changes of airway remodeling. So in part, think of the epithelium as an immune organ. It actually not only protects, but orchestrates and perpetrates the inflammatory response. Now, TSLP can drive changes in airway structural cells in addition to modulating the inflammatory response. TSLP can have a direct effect on myofibroblasts that can contribute to airway remodeling. 
Airway mast cells are activated by TSLP and may provide a cycle of TSLP-driven structural changes. And also, TSLP stimulates airway smooth muscle cells, which in turn can, can promote airway inflammation. In fact, TSLP can be secreted by muscle. So you see the epithelial cells are secreting and affecting immunocyte generation of TSLP. That TSLP, through an autocrine or paracrine pathway, can actually be secreted by structural cells. So you can understand how an upstream modulator plays such a critical role in modulating the immune response attached to airway hyperresponsiveness and asthma. So what do you need to know about the features of asthma associated with TSLP? Well, levels of TSLP are associated with asthma severity, reduced lung function, potential airway remodeling, reduced steroid responsiveness, and exaggerated response to viral infections. In other words, higher levels of TSLP correlate with worse asthma severity, reduced lung function, potential airway remodeling, reduced steroid sensitivity, and an exaggerated response, exaggerated response to viral infections. Now let's take a closer look at the role of TSLP in severe asthma and why it became a therapeutic target with this short video clip. Severe asthma is a complex disease with multiple triggers, endotypes, and inflammatory pathways all contributing to its heterogeneous pathology. Although recent research in asthma has typically centered on the role of downstream mediators in airway inflammation, it has become clear that the focus should shift where it all starts, at the airway epithelium. The airway epithelium is a common source of inflammation and a central factor in asthma pathology. Epithelial tissue is the first point of contact with various insults such as viruses, allergens, pollutants, smoke, bacteria, and other external stimuli. In response to these insults or triggers, the epithelium releases cytokines such as TSLP or thymic stromal lymphopoietin, which then initiates multiple downstream pathways. TSLP is a key epithelial cytokine. Its overexpression by the epithelium can contribute to an overactive immune response and asthma-related inflammation that has been associated with increased asthma severity and decreased lung function. Evidence suggests that due to its position at the top of the inflammatory cascade, TSLP can play a key role in allergic inflammation, eosinophilic inflammation, and, potentially, neutrophilic inflammation. This means that regardless of the type of inflammation, TSLP might drive an immune response that overreacts to various epithelial insults or injury, causing inflammation that can lead to continued asthma symptoms and exacerbations. Tezepelumab binds specifically to TSLP, preventing its interaction with the TSLP receptor complex and inhibiting multiple downstream inflammatory pathways. So in summary of this pathogenesis segment of the talk, it is important to distinguish asthma severity from asthma control and to address secondary factors leading to poor asthma control. Several subtypes of asthma exist, and we covered these extensively, that is T2 high, T2 low, and mixed combinations of the two. Airway epithelium, 
plays a critical role in asthma. And the epithelial alarmants, TSLP, IL-33, and IL-25 are epithelial-derived cytokines that act upstream in the inflammatory pathway and cascades leading to asthma. Attacking the alarmants can modulate high T2 and late low T2 inflammatory responses. So with that, I'd like to pass this baton on to my colleague, Dr. Eileen Wong. Hi everyone, we'll now be talking about the novel and emerging therapies targeted at epithelial alarmants for the treatment of severe asthma, thinking about efficacy, safety, and clinical implications. My name is Eileen Wong. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy Immunology at the National uh, Jewish Health and also the University of Colorado School of Medicine. So thinking about the novel therapies for asthma up until the end of 2021, these biologic therapeutics were targeted at type 2 inflammation. There were anti-IgE, which was amalizumab, anti-IL-5 or anti-IL-5 receptor, which is mepolizumab, reslizumab, and benralizumab, and an anti-IL-4-13 targeted at the IL-4 receptor, which is dupilumab. For the biologic targeting TSLP, this is called tezepelumab, and this was approved by the FDA in December of 2021. It binds to TSLP and specifically blocks it from interacting with its receptor. It has the potential to inhibit multiple downstream inflammatory pathways and enact broad effects on airway inflammation. So looking at this study, a phase two study, which showed significant reduction in annualized asthma exacerbation rates, and this is compared to placebo at week 52. So if you look at this graph, in the dark blue we have placebo. There were three doses, the low, medium, and high dose. The low dose was tezepelumab, 70 milligrams every four weeks. The medium dose was tezepelumab, 210 milligrams every four weeks. And the high dose was tezepelumab, 280 milligrams every two weeks, depicted in the green. All showed significant reduction in the annualized asthma exacerbation rate compared to placebo. Tezepelumab also showed efficacy in a broad range of patients. So here you can see the division between blood eosinophil counts with those with baseline less than 250 cells per microliter compared to those greater than or equal to 250 cells per microliter. And all doses did show significant reductions in the annualized asthma exacerbation rate. Also for fractional exhaled nitric oxide. So looking at those with less than 24 parts per billion compared to those with greater than or equal to 24 parts per billion. And also those with T helper two status, which was defined by those with total serum IgE and blood eosinophil counts at certain cutoffs. And for all these groups, tezepelumab did show efficacy. In the phase three navigator trial, looking at adults and adolescents, 12 years and older, looking at uh, patients with a broad range of inflammatory profiles. So overall, looking at eosinophils broken down by either cutoff of 300, 150, or even in more granular form, uh, greater than or equal to 450, with a range as seen broken down below. In addition to fractional exhaled nitric oxide at baseline with different breakdown, you can see here, compared to placebo, in terms of the annualized asthma exacerbation rate, those with 
various levels of whether you have type 2 inflammatory patterns or not did have efficacy in the tezepelumab groups. Of course, with the type 2 groups, those that have higher eosinophils, higher xyl nitric oxide, did show higher efficacy in terms of tezepelumab compared to placebo. Now looking at biomarkers, so in this phase three navigator trial, looking at the blood eosinophil counts, the fractional xyl nitric oxide, and the total serum Ig over 52 weeks, you can see in the orange compared to the dark blue, uh, the orange being placebo and the dark being blue being tezepelumab, that there were significant decreases in blood eosinophil counts, fractional xyl nitric oxide, and the total serum IgE that were noted at week two and continued throughout the 52 weeks of the study. Other interesting results from Navigator um, include consistently reduced exacerbations across all seasons compared with placebo. In addition, there were reduced airway and circulating inflammatory cytokines and biomarkers as noted before, as early as week two onwards, and that includes the fractional cell nitric oxide, blood eosinophils, total serum IgE, IL-5, and IL-13. Early and sustained reduction in the weekly percentage of asthma symptomatic days versus placebo were also noted. Now, breakthrough uh, updates from ATS 2022, looking further at Navigator results, the patients demonstrated overall a 2.8-fold higher odds of improved clinical responses to tezepelumab compared with placebo, and these included exacerbation reductions, better asthma control, improved lung function, and clinician assessment. 48% of these patients had a complete response and achieved significant and clinically relevant improvements in all four response measures. There were also reductions in both early allergenic responses and late allergenic responses to allergens that were observed with both atezepelumab and omelizumab. Tezepelumab also consistently attenuated nonspecific airway hyperresponsiveness to methacholine or mannitol. In terms of other emerging therapies, there are three that have been looked at that are blocking the IL-33 pathway. Astagolumab is currently phase two with data published, which we will review. Itipecumab also has phase two data that's published, which we will review. And tozaracumab, which is currently in a phase two study and data is expected later this year. So looking at astagolumab, this is an anti-ST2, therefore blocks the IL-33 receptor. So looking at the primary endpoint in this phase two study in adults, the annualized asthma exacerbation rate in the overall population, also looking at them stratified by baseline eosinophil levels, you can see the unadjusted rates by the treatment groups. There were three doses noted here of astagolumab, 70 milligrams subcutaneously every four weeks, 210 milligrams uh, subcutaneously every four weeks, and the 490. And you can see here in the overall group, also with the eosinophils less than 300 cells per microliter at baseline versus those who have 300 or more, also broken down by a, a lower threshold of 150 or one, greater than 150, you can see significant um, decreases in the asthma exacerbation rate, particularly for the 490 mil milligram subcutaneous group. Itipecumab is an anti-L33. Phase two study results, which looked at the primary endpoint of events indicating loss of asthma control during a 12-week intervention period. 
This 12-week intervention period included discontinuation of the long-acting beta agonists and also tapering down of the inhaled corticosteroid. Looking at placebo versus itipecumab, there was also a combination group of itipecumab with dupilumab and also dupilumab monotherapy. The itipecumab monotherapy and the itipecumab plus dupilumab uh, combination therapy had reduced uh, odds ratio versus placebo of these annualized asthma exacerbation rates. And this persisted uh, looking at the subgroups between those with a baseline of uh, eosinophils less than 300 and also in those with baseline eosinophils greater than or equal to 300. Therefore, it appears that itipecumab does have efficacy in those with uh, type 2 inflammation in addition to those without evidence of type 2 inflammation. There was an international group of severe asthma experts that produced an algorithm written in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology um, in practice, published online in 2021, um, in in paper in 2022, in terms of selecting your biologic treatment. So with the baseline assessment, step one, of course, confirm your asthma diagnosis. Then step two, you must evaluate adherence. Step three includes identifying and managing key comorbidities. Four is characterizing the endotype using biomarkers of blood eosinophils, fractional cell nitric oxide, and total serum IgE. And then last step is treat asthma with precision medicine approach. And that's based on the endotype and biomarkers for each individual patient. So looking a little bit further into this algorithm, For those with baseline blood eosinophils less than 150 cells per microliter, so it's important to note there is no evidence to support biologic efficacy in patients with persistently low blood eosinophil counts in fractional cell nitric um, oxide levels. Looking at those on the left side with fractional cell nitric oxide greater than or equal to 25 parts per billion, if you note that there is sensitivity to inhaled perennial um, aeroallergens, such as through skin testing or specific IgE testing and clinical relevance to that, for those that you answer yes, you can consider dupilumab therapy and also omelizumab therapy. Now, this was published before tezapelumab was FDA approved, so you can also, so it did not include tezapelumab in the algorithm, but we are adapting this to also include anti-TSLP uh, or tezapelumab uh, in this algorithm. For those who do not have that sensitivity to perennial aeroallergen, you can consider dupilumab or the anti-IL-413 uh, pathway blockade or also anti-TSLP. Now looking at those with low fractional cell nitric oxide, if there is sensitivity to inhaled perennial aeroallergen, you can consider anti-IgE therapy or amalizumab and also include anti-TSLP with tezapelumab. Now those with low fractional cell nitric oxide and no sensitivity to perennial aeroallergens, and again, this is in the group of those without evidence of elevated blood eosinophils, therefore appearing to be a type two low um, phenotype, you can consider anti-TSLP as based upon the review of the literature that there was an efficacy in terms of the asthma exacerbation rate reduction in those without persistent markers of type 2 inflammation. Now looking further into this algorithm, 
Concerning the group of asthmatics with blood ES levels between 150 and 1500 cells per microliter, and again, consider the blood ES sniffle counts and fractional cell nitric oxide levels as a starting point, but always consider the type 2 comorbid disease entities associated with severe asthma, which we'll go into in further detail. And step one, looking at the first box, considering the um, BEC and pheno, um, and also taking into account whether uh, the BEC or pheno represents the dominant biomarker. So here you may have uh, asthmatics with a mixed picture, both high blood eosinophil counts and high fractional cell nitric oxide. And the key here is trying to determine what the dominant biomarker might be. So if you see that the high blood eosinophils are higher compared to the fractional cell nitric oxide levels, then consider anti-IL-5 um, or 5-receptor alpha, or also you can consider anti-TSLP. Now, if it's the reverse, you have high fractional cell nitric oxide to blood eosinophil levels, then you can consider anti-IL-413, or also consider anti-IL-5, 5-receptor alpha, anti-TSLP is the consideration, and anti-IgE. So here you have uh, potentially uh, a mix of all the biologic therapeutics which could be efficacious. Now looking into comorbid conditions that can play a strong role in terms of your phenotyping of severe asthma, uh, for the first one, you have severe atopic dermatitis, and that can you can consider anti-IL-4 and 13, which has strong data in atopic dermatitis. For chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, there are a few biologics that have been approved for this therapy, and that include the anti-IL-4-13, anti-IgE, or the anti-IL-5-5 receptor alpha. Lastly, if you believe the sensitivity to inhaled perennial allergens might be the comorbidity that is driving uh, this person's severe asthma, you can consider anti-IgE, anti-IL-4-13, anti-IL-5-5 receptor alpha, or anti-TSLP. For this last couple groups, so for those with significantly elevated blood eosinophil counts of greater than 1,500 cells per microliter, it is very important to rule out hematologic conditions and other hypereosinophilic conditions such as eosinophilic granulotopsis with polyangiitis or hypereosinophilic syndrome. Um, then you can consider your anti-IL-5 receptor alpha as this appears to be the dominant biomarker for this group. There's also further evaluation needed on the efficacy of other treatments, such as anti-TSLP, anti-IL-4, or um, anti-IL-413 in this group. For those with oral corticosteroid-dependent asthma, you can remember conducting assessment three, which is to assess for comorbidities. Then you can consider anti-IL-5, 5-receptor alpha, or anti-IL-413. So this biologic treatment response improves with increasing blood eosinophil levels, and additional considerations include biologic selection in pregnancy, BMI, patient preference, treatment compliance, frailty, dexterity, and age. And also consider switching to a different treatment option if a suboptimal response to first-line therapy is observed. And typically, we recommend at least three to six months of a trial before switching. So in summary, biologic therapy is indicated at step five of GINA guidelines. The first available treatments targeted type 2 inflammation only, and that included anti-IgE, omelizumab, anti-IL-5 or 5 receptor, which is mepolizumab, resolizumab, and benrolizumab, anti-IL-413, which is dupilumab, 
And then there's also the novel approach, which is to target this epithelial cytokines to inhibit multiple downstream inflammatory pathways and therefore to enact these broad effects on airway inflammation. And this includes the FDA-approved anti-TSLP, tezepelumab. There are also numerous exciting emerging therapies coming down the line, including anti-IL-33 or anti-IL-33 receptor, which include astigolumab, itipecumab, and tozarecumab, and there's also more data to come. Wow, that was great, Eileen, and that, uh, that was a tremendous amount of information to cover. Uh, we, we do have the opportunity to answer a couple questions that came in from our colleagues. Um, and so let's go to those. Um, the first question, are there any contraindications to anti-TSLP therapy? Well, the only ones that I'm aware of is uh, really a hypersensitivity to TSLP uh, therapy. And since TSLP is upstream of modulating eosinophil counts, caution should be taken uh, with regard to its use in helminth infections. Of course, if you have an ongoing helminth infection, you should treat with anti-helminths, uh, and you could use an anti-TSLP. However, if you're not responsive to the anti-helminth therapy, then, um, then it's probably wise to stop uh, the anti-TSLP therapy. And I, and I think we should all be cautious as we get asthma under control and taper and taper oral corticosteroids or, or high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, that one needs to be aware that you could precipitate uh, adrenal insufficiency. So to recap, the only three contraindications I'm aware of is a hypersensitivity to TSLP, helmet infections, you can treat through them, uh, but if the patient's unresponsive to anti-helmet therapy and on TSLP, probably wise to stop the TSLP. And of course, be cautious uh, with tapering of high-dose inhaled corticosteroids or oral corticosteroids. Uh, Dr. Wang, anything to add to that question? Terry, I think that was a thorough and very complete answer. I have nothing additional to add. Well, that concludes this, uh, this presentation. Uh, I have a lot of thanks, uh, a lot of thanks to Dr. Wang and a beautiful presentation on the therapeutics associated with biologics and severe asthma. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you all for the audience for tuning in and being so attentive to the items that we covered today. Uh, lastly, to our sponsors, Peerview, fantastic job in coordinating this. And of course, to our uh, sponsor, AstraZeneca, uh, for their uh, support of this educational program. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NDA 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca LP.